The bravery of two surfers who took on a great white shark which First, was on the attack on the New South Wales coast is beyond belief. Not only did they fight it off... Shock tonight, a boy just 15 years old dead after a shark attack. ...not far from shore when the shark struck. A few years ago, the town I live in here in Australia fell victim to a close series of random shark attacks. It caused some major disturbances in the community of our sleepy surfer town. As surfers and conservationists began to butt heads over how to handle the situation, I became humbled by first-hand accounts from shark attack victims. This changed the way I saw things, the way I felt about sharks and the people affected by them. I re-examined my outlook on the issues and how to solve them. I saw a need for more education a huge need to separate the gap between sharks and the people that surf next to them. Our conservation community was so fixated on protecting sharks, no one was focusing on using what we have to protect people. As people that know sharks, it's kind of insane to see people surfing near a river mouth after a heavy storm, getting attacked by a bull shark and then calling for a shark cull, when we know this to be an obvious failure on the human side because we know rainfall and river mouths mean bull sharks. But why don't surfers know this? There is a huge part of our ocean-based community that does not have this information. They don't know a shark is more likely to attack at certain times of the year, in certain ways, or from certain stimuli. So I started writing. I referenced surfers, scientists, oceanographers and paramedics. And the end result was the Australian Surfing Guide to Sharks. I learnt so much while putting this document together. Things I can't believe I previously entered the water without knowing. And that's the point to this guide. As surfers, you swim next to dangerous predators daily. You need to know how those predators work. You can download the guide on the website surfingguidetosharks.com or listen to it right here. I'm usually your podcast host, but today I have no guest. All I'm going to do is read to you. I'm going to read the guide as a product of my desire to, in some small way, help both humans and sharks here in Australia. It's a constantly evolving document. It's something that I have no official training or qualifications in completing. But I hope it helps you. And I want to also thank everyone who contributed to the guide and whose work continues to increase our knowledge of sharks. I hope you send this to every surfer you know, every human that enters the water, and I hope they listen to it so as that they can not only better protect themselves, but also realise that responsibility is on them. And when we enter the oceans, we do so with the risks in mind, and acceptance of them. So to not keep you any longer, this is the Australian Surfing Guide to Sharks. I looked on the Australian Surf Lifesaving website not too long ago. It contained warnings of jellyfish, rips and skin cancer, but I saw no mention of sharks. As a nation, we seem to have no desire to address the reality of the apex predators we share the oceans with on a daily basis. Until, of course, it is too late. And then we talk about them in the media, 
perpetuating ideas of fear and terror to no one's benefit. In the absence of knowledge, fueled by a reluctance to accept our place below them in the food chain, how can we expect to coexist with what is, in reality, a dangerous animal? No form of shark mitigation will keep us 100% safe on our vast coastline, and no matter how hard we try, we can never rid the oceans of sharks. Shark interactions are an inevitability for Australians. Short of staying out of the water, we cannot choose if we have them or not. We can, however, choose the terms on which those interactions occur. This is my small and I feel much needed guide for the swimmers, surfers and ocean goers of Australia who are on the front line of shark interactions daily. You are in situations more dangerous than people who work and dive with sharks. You deserve to have the information that may help you. Because when entering the ocean, a responsibility to be educated towards its dangers has failed to be enforced in our communities. And this needs to change. We need to be able to read the factors that increase the risk of a shark attack, as well as we read the waves. I truly hope this document helps you do that. And I hope it sheds some light on the seemingly endless darkness inspired by the Australian media towards the shark, and gives you a little more confidence in the water. According to the Australian shark attack file, in the last 50 years, there have been a total of 47 unprovoked shark attack fatalities, while the Royal Life Saving Society notes a 10-year average of 292 deaths per year for people drowning in Australia. There were 176 diving-related deaths in Australia between 2002 and 2009, an average of 23 per year. Fatalities from shark attacks over the last 50 years average just under one per year. This guide is a summary of my understanding of sharks and their behaviour, including what I have absorbed from those around me with years of experience and knowledge, as well as the knowledge from a range of scientists, oceanographers and oceangoers, and should be used at your own discretion. Chapter 1. Environmental Factors Environmental factors can affect a shark's ability to successfully detect and approach its prey. There are environmental conditions that can often facilitate the success rate of a shark attack, making certain times and features of the environment favourable to sharks, thus increasing the danger. An eight-year study focusing on Seal Island in South Africa recorded the shark attacks on seals in particular with a focus on their success rates. Attacks and attack attempts varied with changes in depth, natural light, time of day, time of year, wind direction, and other factors, proving the effect of the environment on attacks. I once heard someone say there are no dangerous sharks, just dangerous situations, and the same can be true for many wild animals. The reality is you may avoid all the factors listed below and surf in crystal clear water at a perfect time on a perfect day and still become subject to a shark attack. Shark behaviour cannot be guaranteed and taking that risk is something you need to be mentally prepared for before entering the water. In the meantime, the information below is a foundation for risk factors to be aware of. Bait balls are a common occurrence along our coastline here in Australia. They occur when small fish swarm in a tightly packed formation, usually as a defence mechanism against predators. 
One theory for the frequent attacks that occurred in a short span of time in Ballina, Australia, could be pinned to a single environmental anomaly that allowed for masses of bait balls. In the year 2000, blue pilchards were devastated by a disease that was introduced into our waters. The species was not expected to bounce back from the collapse. However, the bait balls in Ballina, at the time of the frequent shark attacks, were made up of blue pilchards. When a fish species bounces back from a threat like this, they return in an unsustainable proportion and take time to dwindle down to a sustainable number, depending on predation and availability of food in their environment. So, not only did we have bait balls, but we also had an unusual amount of one particular species, meaning the availability of food could have been responsible for the unusually high number of sharks in the area. Flocks of diving seabirds are a good indicator that there is a bait ball offshore, and it is important to look for this and try to avoid surfing any patch of coast where this feeding action may be happening. Putting yourself into a bait ball is putting yourself into a feeding frenzy, where animals are moving fast and making snap judgments, and are ultimately in the area to hunt. In addition to these signs, be aware that contrary to popular belief, large sharks are not deterred by dolphins. In fact, dolphins and sharks will often feed on the same fish and in some cases, dolphins are potential food for large sharks. Rainfall and river mouths Rainfall and river mouths can be dangerous when surfing for a number of reasons. After rainfall, nutrients run into the ocean and attract fish and other animals to feed. This in turn can attract different species of sharks. Additionally, the visibility of the water after rainfall can greatly decrease which is ideal for ambush predators like sharks to hunt in. One example of rainfall creating a dangerous situation was an attack in Ballina, where a man was surfing at 6.30pm near a river mouth after heavy rainfall and was attacked by a bull shark. Their rainfall, visibility and time of day made it a dangerous situation for surfers. Bull sharks are the primary concern with rainfall. Being one of the few species that can travel into freshwater by increasing the level of urea in their system as they mature, researchers found that bull sharks move down into the lower realms of rivers before migrating to the open ocean in their fifth or sixth year. Dr. Jonathan Wary from the Ocean and Coast Research Group states that bull sharks will move into areas. They get flushed out of rivers because their normal distribution patterns rely on salinity levels. That's why when you've seen attacks in Australia and around the world, a lot of them have to do with periods of rainfall. You see them also go into holes within canals and river systems to possibly get some refuge from strong flowing amounts of rain. Big enough rainfall can change the normal distribution patterns of bull sharks within a river system and can move them out of that river into a nearby beach area. River mouths can also represent a food source for sharks due to runoff flowing into the ocean from upriver. Runoff from fertilisers and even sewage can cause fish to feed and congregate in the river mouth, and this congregation will attract sharks. Drop-offs and deep water. These are great opportunities for sharks, and large sharks in particular like to hunt near drop-offs, in between sandbanks and on the edge of kelp forests, where they wait to surprise seals, fish or turtles swimming by. The reason great white sharks have a white belly and a darker coloration to the top of their body is so that they remain camouflaged with the ocean ground when looking down and blend in with the sky when looking up from underneath. Seals are fast and can easily outmaneuver great whites, which is why great whites attack in a way that has the element of surprise. 
ultimately using their habitat to their advantage. This is why locations where there is a vast amount of deep space underneath can be dangerous if a great white shark is hunting in the area. The depth allows them to complete the ambush foundation of their hunting. Even though sharks are capable of swimming in very shallow water, most shark activity occurs in deeper water. Shark spotters in False Bay, South Africa, have recorded over 70% of great white shark sightings behind the surf zone in deeper water. Water temperature. One example of how water temperature influences shark activity is in northern New South Wales. In winter, whales migrate up the coast with their newly born calves, and great whites take this opportunity to follow the whales' movements, preying on the newborn calves and the straggling adults. The chances of seeing white sharks and shark attacks therefore increase in winter. Cold water upwellings also carry nutrients that allow great whites to push further inshore. University of Sydney lecturer Christopher Neff also stated that every deadly attack in Western Australia had occurred in temperatures ranging between 18 and 20 degrees Celsius. He said white sharks come inshore when the water surface temperature is about 18 degrees and there hasn't been an attack in WA when the water temperature wasn't 20 degrees Celsius or below. Great white sharks are a cold water species, and their bodies possess a countercurrent artery and vein system. Their blood flow exchanges heat by mixing the cold blood from the arteries with the warm blood from the veins. Great white sharks can therefore elevate their body temperature up to 14 degrees Celsius higher than the surrounding water. Increasingly warm waters around the globe due to climate change and El Nino can also affect sharks. This has been suggested to influence the highest number of shark attacks ever recorded in 2015 due to greater interactions between humans and sharks in the water as temperature changes allow sharks to coexist in closer proximity to humans. As oceans heat up, entire ecosystems are forced to adapt. Fish are migrating where they've never gone before and species behaviours are changing. It's happening in Australia. Species typically seen in northern tropical waters are appearing in droves near the southern island state of Tasmania. The common Sydney octopus has shifted from the northeastern state of Queensland all the way to Tasmania. Even plankton and plant life, like kelp, are moving south. In 2020, California State University researchers reported an increase in the number of white sharks they were able to tag, also noticing they stayed in areas longer than ever before. These habits have been attributed to climate change. With a change in distribution of prey species and an increase of geographical range, this means the future of human-shark interactions could be changing rapidly and remains unknown territory for all of us. Whale carcasses and animal remains Whale carcasses and animal remains are an obvious reason for sharks to be present as they are an easy food source for predators. When we decide to go into the ocean, we accept that boat traffic and fishing boats are present, but we don't stop to think about the smells they put out through the water, which could attract sharks. Sharks' strongest sense is their sense of smell, but a human impact on the environment has meant more things are attracting sharks. In the waters of New South Wales, 50 shark deaths have been recorded, half of which occurred in Sydney Harbour, between 1852 and 1915, when the Glebe Island Abattoir was in operation. 
Stimuli like spearfishing, whale carcasses, or anything that could be a potential food source to sharks could be carried with the tide to a surfing location and need to be considered. While human blood is not considered a major attractor of sharks, which we discuss further on in this document, fishing harbours and areas used regularly by fishermen should be avoided, especially when fish catches are high. We must also be aware of any whales that have been buried on nearby beaches or may have recently died in the area. There is no way to establish a safe distance between you and animal remains. Tides and currents carry that smell. Time of day. Time of day is a significant factor in shark attacks. Dusk and dawn are high danger times due to the position of light. Documented great white shark hunting habits show that they are at a visual and tactical advantage at times of low light, as it makes it harder for the prey to spot their camouflage. Dusk is also when fish are highly active, which can result in an increase in feeding frenzies. It has also been found that great whites continued to hunt throughout the day when it was overcast, as this increases their ability to camouflage. As for the risk of humans being attacked at night time, the makeup of a great white shark's eyes suggests that they are crepuscular hunters, which means they resemble or relate to twilight. They, like other sharks, also have a layer of tissue behind the retina called tapetum lucidum. It acts to reflect light into the retina a second time, increasing the light available to the shark. This all suggests low light is more favourable to them than no light. Other species of sharks, however, such as tiger sharks, commonly attack at night. Dr Jonathan Wary, a shark research scientist who tracked bull sharks on the Gold Coast, claims that dusk and dawn and during the night is when the sharks' movements increase significantly. So although it seems white sharks are not a nighttime consideration, this is not the same for other species, such as tigers and bulls. Andrew Fox, son of the infamous shark attack victim Rodney Fox, now runs shark diving charters in southern Australia. He theorises that the attacks that don't occur in dusk and dawn, rather in the middle of the day, could be because sharks are off hunting their usual prey at these times. However, during the day, their behaviour becomes opportunistic and away from their common behaviour. This is when we see attacks on humans, when they aren't distracted by their usual hunting habits. Moon phases. The influence of moon phases on sharks is perhaps a less serious environmental factor, but a fascinating one nonetheless. When a spate of shark attacks occurred in northern New South Wales, there were countless theories as to why such a peak in attacks had happened. One observation documented by researchers Malia Reunion and Nick Brennan was that the shark encounters and attacks were focused around the two lunar cycles after the first whales had made their migration. They theorised that due to El Nino that year, whales migrated up the coast later than what could be considered usual. This slight change in whale migration patterns could have caused disruption amongst the great white sharks' feeding opportunities. This could have then caused them to move closer to shore and feed on fish, and therefore increasing their interaction with humans. Wildlife activity also increases and aggregates on full moons, creating more feeding opportunities for predators. Sharks have even been documented leaving shallow water on a full moon, and returning on a new moon. Malia suggests that because the whales migrated later, this created less feeding opportunities for the great whites, at a key time for them. A small amount of sharks became desperate, and took an opportunity to feed on the full moon. 
This then resulted in an increase in negative human shark encounters in the region. In addition to that, in my short amount of time with Dr. George Burgess, the world-leading authority on shark attacks, he told me that although he cannot prove it, he believes there is a direct correlation between shark attacks and the cycle of the moon and full moons. Why do sharks attack humans? With over 517 shark species being scientifically identified, the three attributed to the most attacks on humans are the great white shark, Carcharodon carcarius, the tiger shark, Galeocerto cuvia, and the bull shark, Carcharinus lucus. A document investigating changing patterns of shark attacks in Australian waters by John West, the curator of the Australian shark attack file, gives us a good insight into shark attacks. Of the 15 fatalities attributed to great white sharks, seven involved a single bite and seven resulted from multiple bites. There was an unknown number of bites for one fatality. Seven fatal attacks by white sharks occurred at the surface while the victim was surfing, swimming or sailboarding. Eight of the fatalities by white sharks occurred while the victim was submerged, either scuba diving or snorkeling. Of the four fatalities attributed to bull sharks, one involved a single bite and three involved multiple bites. All four fatal incidents occurred at the surface, three while swimming, one while surfing. Two of the four fatalities occurred in human-made canals. Of the three fatalities attributed to tiger sharks, two involved a single bite. One fatal attack occurred at the surface on a sailboarder, and two occurred at the subsurface on a snorkeler and a hooker diver. Why sharks attack people is a question with multiple answers, with the most common being due to mistaken identity. There is a lot of truth to this. As we go into the ocean, dressed like seals, we become silhouettes of the perfect meal from underneath to a white shark. Although mistaken identity is a solid theory, I do need to state my opinion. We are below white sharks in the food chain. We are mammals. We are not fluid or fast in the water. We are easy prey. I will make no excuses for these animals. I will not create a false idea of their nature or purpose in the ocean. Are these animals mindless killers that seek to eat humans? Absolutely not. What they are, however, is a large animal, incredibly skilled at ambush and extremely dangerous. And sometimes they attack humans. And sometimes, although rare, they attack a human for the purpose of consuming them. Having said that, we aren't common food for them. If sharks wanted to attack humans or had a taste for us, the beaches would be a no-go zone for people, and the amount of fatalities would be far greater. So it is safe to say sharks are not after humans. We are not part of their common diet. The high metabolic rate of great whites suggests that they prefer food with a high fat content, such as seals. They even have ways of detecting fat content of their prey once they bite down. It is suggested that non-consumptive strikes on sea otters, seabirds, inedible objects, and humans may represent food rejection because of the inadequate energy content. This can be seen when studying great white sharks selectively feeding on the blubber, but not the underlying muscle layers, of a carcass of a whale. What sharks do to humans and most other potential food is merely a test bite, which is why most victims end up on shore with the severity of blood loss as the determining factor of life or death. In the majority of cases, great white sharks do not eat people, as their aim is not to eat us, but to test us. White sharks are, however, 
very smart and incredibly inquisitive, which can be dangerous with both of these traits being present in a large marine predator. Another potential reason for one-bite attacks could be the habit of the great white shark to bite down on their prey once, then leave it to bleed out and die before coming back to eat it. This prevents the shark from getting any injuries as the prey struggles or fights back whilst being eaten. Great white sharks have adapted their techniques to the specific locations they hunt. Great whites hunt seals, and due to the speed and invasiveness of a seal, they need to hunt injured or unsuspecting seals. To do this, great whites launch from underneath, near the ocean floor, coming up at its prey. If you look at a surfer from underneath, the silhouette is almost identical to that of a seal, at least to a great white. Realistically, compared to tigers and bulls, great white sharks show relatively little aggression towards humans. It is merely the power of their teeth and sheer size that makes their movements fatal. Sharks are designed to hunt weak and injured animals, and the way we look in the water is the way struggling and easy prey looks and is interpreted by a shark. There is also a common theory that great whites of a certain size are still learning. Juvenile great white sharks have a diet of fish and stingrays and other small prey. Their jaws don't yet have structural power to take on large prey like small mammals or people. This is something they develop the ability to do later on in life. When they begin to change their hunting habits and are learning how to identify and target new prey, they make mistakes. This can also be confirmed by the shark attack file stating that in over 80% of incidents involving white sharks and tiger sharks, the sharks were less than 3 metres in length. Scientist Alison Towner, who conducted extensive research into the hunting habits of great whites, saw significant differences in the experienced and not-so-experienced great whites. She states, My volunteers and I were tracking a large male shark, an animal we know has been returning to this island for more than 12 years. For the first eight hours, he patrolled back and forth, seemingly uninterested in prey. Then, to our surprise, he rushed up directly towards the rocks and grabbed a seal as it was half out of the water and devoured it. Another younger white shark we tracked, west of the island, tried predation on a seal, missed, and then proceeded to chase its own tail. Other culprits include tiger sharks which are essentially large scavengers and will opportunistically attack something they believe poses no threat to them, as well as bull sharks, which we mentioned earlier. It would be smart to learn which of these are in your local area and then study up on that particular shark species. Each species has specific traits and diets and times that influences the chance of an attack. Knowing what you are up against is the safest way to share their home. Another theory I read about in the Shark Attack Theories document by John West is that sharks are aggressive to humans, as they are to other sharks. Many shark species display social and aggressive behaviours towards each other. These behaviours, which are common in species that congregate in large schools, are usually associated with size and hierarchies of dominance. It has been observed that smaller white sharks give way to larger sharks, especially when feeding. The types of wounds seen on some of the sharks are similar to those inflicted on humans from a single raking type bite. Here's a really interesting quote from the paper, Changing Patterns of Shark Attacks in Australian Waters, by John West. Shark attacks occur all year round in Australian waters. Over the past 20 years, 71% of the attacks occurred between November and April. 
This seasonal peak period coincides with the warmest air and water temperatures and school holidays, Christmas, New Year's and Easter holiday periods. This is the time of maximum use of beaches, harbours and rivers for recreation, and the time when most people are in the water, increasing the risk of a shark encounter. Potential steps to avoid a shark attack. Avoid wearing shiny jewellery, as the shimmer resembles the shine of fish scales. This is particularly true for bull sharks in murky water. Avoid the colour orange. While this is not necessarily a scientifically proven or backed statement, but one from people who have experienced and worked with sharks, great whites in particular tend to favour certain colours. Avoid peeing in your wetsuit. Sharks have been known to be attracted to such bodily fluids. I know, that's the best part about surfing. If you are confronted by a great white in midwater, swim towards the shark as it swims towards you, making yourself as large as possible. Sharks will be more likely to investigate if you are rolled up in a small ball, but when you stretch out your body and become a large figure, they are more likely to leave you alone. Watch the other animals around you, as the behaviour of seals, dolphins, and other marine life are often your first indication that a hunting shark is in the area. When sitting in the lineup, it is best to make sure you're with a few people. Sharks are less likely to approach in a group. Safety in numbers. Leave the water when you see a shark's preferred choice of prey, seals, sea lions, turtles, seabirds, tuna, to avoid becoming mistaken identity. Make sure there is nothing nearby splashing unnecessarily, as it can attract the shark to the surface to explore if it's a potential prey item in distress. And most importantly, trust your gut feelings and your instincts. If it feels sharky, it probably is sharky. What to do if an interaction occurs? If a shark is circling, it usually indicates pure curiosity, and what happens next will depend on your reaction. Panicking and swimming to shore fast is most likely to increase your risk of being attacked. Remain in a group. Sharks, like most predators, are more likely to go after an individual. An inquisitive shark can usually be discouraged if you swim towards it and it's faced with aggression. If a shark is coming toward you, try to place anything you may have between you and the shark, like your board. It is important to try not to panic, as there is a chance once the shark has lost curiosity, it will leave you alone. Research has shown that when a kayaker stopped paddling and remained still, great whites lost interest. But frantic paddling was shown to stimulate the shark's pursuit behaviour. If you feel a bump, calmly get out of the water. Many species, such as bull sharks, are known to bump before they bite. Coming across a shark in the water does not mean the end. Sharks are very inquisitive, and the key to survival is to make sure you see them before they attack, and use every means possible to make the shark see you as a fellow predator and not prey. If the shark persists and gets close enough to do so, punch it in the nose or gills, as both are very sensitive areas on a shark's body. First aid. The International Paramedic College based in Ballina, Evans Head and Byron Bay has seen several shark attacks and a number of incidents over the last few years. In response, they developed a shark attack pack. It combines a number of first aid products to deal with traumatic life-threatening injuries. The kit consists of a combat application tourniquet, two emergency bandages, sometimes referred to as Israeli bandages, 
a pair of paramedic shears to cut wetsuits and gloves and training in their use. It's worth investing in these items and keeping them in your car. Fast responses to these injuries can be the difference between life and death. They also offer first aid courses specific to this type of incident. Terra Australis of Western Australia have also created a small video showing you the best first aid in a shark attack situation. Please check out the video. A link will be in this podcast show notes. Below are some of the pointers featured. Use teamwork and aid of other surfers to get the victim on top of their board. Stop blood loss in the water through applying pressure on the wound or using a leg rope or an item of clothing as a tourniquet. Wrap it around at least three times. By staying together with fellow surfers and your boards, you create a larger surface area that helps to deter returning sharks as you swim the victim back to shore. Once on shore, keep the victim on the board. Place them on the beach with their head to the water, elevating their legs up the beach. This keeps the blood flow around the body core. Use a towel to apply direct pressure and check the breathing status of the victim. Once on the beach, use a proper tourniquet to stop the bleeding. Perform CPR if necessary. Are shark nets or shark culls the answer? If the solution to stopping shark attacks on humans were as simple as the presence of shark nets or enforcing shark culls, it would not be so widely opposed. The reason most people who work with and study sharks oppose these methods is not because they are against the death of sharks, but predominantly because they know that these methods are ineffective. Often they paint the issue as solved, leaving a false sense of security amongst the community that can in turn lead to more shark-related deaths. More than 30 shark attacks have occurred at beaches with shark nets on the Gold Coast, but the reason you never hear about them is because they have not become fatalities. That's not because of the nets. That's because beaches with shark nets are patrolled. The shark attack victim has an immediate response from lifeguards and a far quicker response time from paramedics, meaning no death occurred from blood loss. In fact, the sole purpose of the nets is to give tourists and locals a false sense of security. The government section devoted to the maintenance of the nets states a revealing summary of their purpose on their website. The shark control program relies on nets or drumlines, or a combination of both, to minimise the threat of a shark attack on humans in particular locations. It is not designed to provide a distinct barrier between sharks and humans, just to remove high-risk sharks from a particular location. The nets do not stop attacks. The nets have even taken a human life, killing a young boy after becoming loose and entangling him. The program in Queensland has captured approximately 78,000 marine animals since the 60s. Most of these animals caught in the nets are caught heading from the beachside back out to sea. There is also a long list of animals such as dolphins, turtles and other species that have been caught in these nets, later being found half-eaten by something much bigger. This suggests that the nets are acting as a form of chum, a buffet of dead animals, attracting sharks to feed on them. We witnessed an attempt by the Western Australian government to implement a shark cull after a series of attacks on surfers in a short time. The shark cull caught over a hundred sharks, mostly tiger sharks, and not a single great white. Tiger sharks have not been responsible for an attack on humans in that area for over 80 years. The species implicated with attacks on humans are mostly great whites. This species cross oceans, 
they migrate, and therefore eliminating their local population, would not prevent a new one coming in. The other thing we seem to forget is that baited drumlines are food to sharks. As the tide runs out and carries the smell of rotting food, it potentially chumps the area. A shark cull could never cull an entire population of sharks, therefore making the ocean safe. In fact, the consequences of removing a slow-growing apex predator, whose place in the food chain already means there are so few of them, also has huge environmental ramifications. It is also important to point out that protection measures against sharks are an important idea, and I am not against them. But the cull is not one of those measures. I am often asked if I am against shark culls, and most people associate my answer with a lack of respect for human life. However, in the case of shark culls, the ineffectiveness is the reason for my opinion. In addition to this, it's known that the removal of a large shark from an area actually exposes this area to be filled with smaller sharks that would otherwise be pushed out of the territory. When we think of great white sharks, we know the smaller ones are more likely to be implicated in attacks, making culling not only ineffective, but potentially increasing the danger. George Burgess, the former director of the International Shark Attack File, describes shark culling as a form of revenge, satisfying a public demand for blood and little else. He said that shark culling is a retro-type movement reminiscent of what people would have done in the 1940s and 50s, back when we didn't have an ecological conscience and before we knew the consequences of our actions. Burgess also said shark culling will not make surfers safer. Australia is one of only three countries that still runs a shark cull. Sharks and blood. It's true, sharks can detect one drop of blood in a million drops of water. But do they react to it? The truth is sharks are attracted to the blood of fish and other marine animals, while human blood is not on their radar. I've suffered cuts and even a nosebleed in the middle of shark feeds with no reaction from sharks. However, sharks can pick up electricity like the faint electricity created by the bioelectrical impulse of a heartbeat. The skin acts as an insulating layer and blocks a lot of that signal. When you are cut, the insulation is compromised, allowing your electricity to go through the water easier and therefore stronger. If you are injured in the water and have a cut, your heartbeat will be louder. To a shark, that means injured or scared, and sharks prey on the injured and scared. This only takes effect in the last few metres of contact. However, it must be noted that human blood doesn't turn sharks into jaws. Additionally, blood, urine, body odour and electromagnetic fields will quickly dilute or dissipate in the ocean. One drop of odour concentration in moderately turbulent flowing water would dilute at one kilometre away, which would not be recognised as blood or even registered as stimuli. There would need to be large amounts of blood flowing from the source for this to occur. As an example, one need only consider the amount of chum or burly required to attract a shark to a fishing boat. Some sharks have been known to swim past several people in the water to focus their attention on an individual within a group of swimmers or surfers. It is more likely that the shark selection process may be related to the behaviour or activity of an individual rather than the scent. Of an individual's blood or other excretions. Sharks and you. 
Shark scientists say a shark can hear you from 1,000 to 10,000 metres away, smell and see you from 10 to 100 metres, and perceive you electromagnetically via sensors called ampullae of Lorenzini at half a metre, before switching to direct contact. We see examples of this when metal is in salt water. It emits a very strong electromagnetic field, which can overstimulate a shark's sensory perception and influence them to bite things, like a metal boat propeller or a shark cage. It is more likely that a shark is attracted by a person's activity in the water rather than the relatively low level of electromagnetic field a human may produce. It has been well documented that sharks are attracted to low-level frequency sounds, particularly in the range of 10 hertz to 50 hertz, which is within a frequency also given off by struggling or injured fish. Tests have determined that sharks use their lateral lines and inner ears to locate prey as far away as 250 metres or more. Human activities in the water may attract a shark's attention. Sound, rather than sight or smell, seems to be a shark's primary cue for moving into an area from a distance. However, once they are attracted to the source of the sound, they are more likely to investigate the object, relying more on sight than hearing. Their vision varies between species, but research has suggested they can see colours, but mainly contrasts which is why a lot of shark deterrent work has been done around the visual capabilities of sharks. Great whites are suggested to be more attracted to yellow and orange than any other colour for unknown reasons. However, the strongest sense of a shark still remains its smell. This is why it's important to notice if fishing is occurring in the area, or if a dead whale has been washed up, as it means there is a smell line going out to the ocean, which may attract sharks inshore. Have shark populations boomed? There has been speculation that overfishing is depleting the world's fish stocks and sharks are starving and seek out humans as a source of food. While it may be true that commercial fishing has depleted stocks in some areas of the ocean, most large predatory sharks, particularly those species known to attack humans, have the ability to travel long distances to other feeding grounds and do so as part of their normal distribution and migration behaviour. Changes in prey item preference and the diversity of food items found in the stomachs of sharks would also give these sharks a broad range of food items to pick from. A starving shark is more likely to move where their preferred food is more available, not less. Another myth is that shark populations have exploded. Within the animal kingdom, sharks are famously slow reproducers, The female great white sharks, for instance, typically produce a couple of offspring every other year and only start reproducing once they reach 17 years of age. As a result, sharks are biologically incapable of baby booms and indeed are very sensitive to even low levels of fishing. We may be seeing more sharks in some specific areas due to changes in ocean conditions and there is a need for me to address that shark populations particularly great whites, have not boomed, but have increased. This is something that fishermen will continue to confirm visually compared to times when both whales and sharks were less abundant. Another indicator of shark decline is the Beach Protection Program in New South Wales, where catches have been monitored for decades and provide a long-term data series. From the introduction of the Shark Meshing Program in Sydney in 1937, 
1,500 sharks were caught in the first 17 months, an average of 88 sharks per month. Within a decade, catches from the SMP averaged less than 8 sharks per month in the Sydney region. Almost all species have declined over that period. Declines in the number of sharks captured following the introduction of the shark control measures were also found in Queensland. The shark meshing and commercial catch rate declines suggest that the increase in reported shark attacks over the past two decades is not a result of increasing shark numbers. I'm now going to talk about shark deterrent techniques. And the first one is eyes. As we've discussed, sharks are ambush predators. So one technique I heard about surfers using was painting eyes on the bottom of their surfboards. I followed their idea and spray-painted a big pair of contrasted black eyes on the bottom of my surfboard. Low-light times of day make it hard to see the eyes on a silhouetted board, backlit from the surface, so making the eyes large and visible is important. I have seen the effects of eye contact with sharks a number of times. Eye contact deters them from an ambush pattern they rely on to get close to their prey. It makes sense that appearing to maintain eye contact with a shark would give you a little bit of extra safety. The water is not the only place where this works. In Africa, a lion can ruin a small farmer's livelihood by killing even a single cow, especially one that is pregnant or producing milk. After observing a failed attempt of a lion to ambush an impala when eye contact was made from the prey, a team tested this by painting large eyes on a third of a herd of cows on a farm on the edge of a wildlife area near Mon. Lions killed three of the 39 unpainted cows, but none of the 23 painted cows were taken. Another technique is stripes. The banded sea crate is a highly venomous creature and it is defined by its distinctive stripes. While these stripes do not help with camouflage, they do help the animal with defense against predators. Sea crates and other brightly striped or colored animals have that distinctive pattern because it's nature's way of signifying to predators that they are venomous and therefore not good to eat. So the idea with having stripes on the surface board is to signify to the sharks that you are too venomous. Both designs can be done with a simple stencil or freehand with some paint. However, this isn't the only reason why stripes are considered a deterrent these days. The new theory, with more scientific backing, is that the stripes break up your contrast in the water, and instead of a seal-shaped silhouette, you are now a broken-up pattern and not one large object. This is a very handy thing to have around ambush predators, and this theory is illustrated by a company called SAMS, who are developing wetsuits and boards that use this method. It was first documented by scientist Eugenie Clark, who discovered captured lemon sharks were able to associate pushing a yellow button with receiving food. However, when the button was painted with white and black stripes, they simply couldn't find it. Shark Shields Although the shark shield was recently found effective at deterring large sharks, it relies on a number of factors. For example, when or if it has been turned on and how the shark approaches. It is, however, the only scientifically proven and independently tested electric shark deterrent and has been under development for more than 20 years. It is important not to surf under an illusion of full protection, but shark deterrents like this one, although expensive, are undoubtedly useful. Conclusion 
There is an island of Esperance in Western Australia, a classified hope spot, and an isolated heaven for multiple species. My first dive there, under the supervision of scientists and experienced abalone divers, saw me encountering my first real white shark. Why real? Because this shark had never seen humans before. There was no hesitation for it to approach the cage as soon as it saw us. It managed to balance caution and curiosity, enough for me to immediately know my place in its environment, and that my place was at its mercy. When our cages hit the ocean floor, we emerged from them into the open ocean. The kelp on the ocean floor was calm and peaceful, but above it was a lot of blue space to keep an eye on. We came close to the shark that day. He came up to us many times. He swam above us. The entire time exposed outside the cage, although less than 20 minutes, felt like a lifetime. I was low on air when my dive buddy checked my air for me, because I had forgotten to do so. We left the floor and headed up. I remember vividly the big black eye, the complete shock of the size of the animal. I couldn't have anticipated its demeanour, its power or its presence. Just like I cannot pretend to understand what people who have negatively encountered these animals have gone through. That's why I won't pretend to understand, but I'm open to doing so to the best of my ability. The victims of shark attacks represent an important need for less of a gap between people like myself, devoted to the preservation of sharks, and people who are encountering them in the oceans. This guide was a statement for them, to not only acknowledge that I understand the impact these animals have on humans, but to firmly enforce the need to stop pretending sharks aren't dangerous. And also, that makes us responsible, not them. The reality of the environment here in Australia, and anywhere in the world, is a reality we have forgotten. It is not ours and it means we may have to abandon a perfect break every now and then to avoid becoming a victim to a shark attack. It is also important to remember that while reacting to shark attacks in the name of the public is a good political move, it is not always done with the intention of truly helping people. The very real threat of sharks needs to be taken into our own hands, and not just that of our governments. Sharks are not a mystery. They are not an enigma. There are many things you can and should learn about these dangerous predators when you enter the water with them, just as a hiker does with a bear. Our entitlement to the ocean will be our undoing. We need to make coexistence part of today's culture, because being in the presence of greatness like the shark, although sometimes terrifying, is not only an inevitability, it's a privilege.